First Peter one thirteen. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." For he who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart." For you've you've not been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which, which was preached to you. Here ends the reading of God's word. I'm open to Ruth, Old Testament. After Deuteronomy comes Joshua, then Judges, then Ruth. What we're going to do now is we're going to do an overview of the book of Ruth this morning. So kind of, as they say, a 30,000 foot view of Ruth. And what I want you to walk away with today from the book of Ruth, this great story about a kinsman redeemer, is I want you to see how the book of Ruth typifies the Lord Jesus Christ, the great kinsman redeemer. So we're going to see how Christ is typified through Ruth and how the church is typified through Ruth. Okay? And then we'll go back next week and we'll look at it verse by verse. So I'm going to read chapter 1, and we'll do an overview this morning. Here here is now the reading of the Word of God, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of the wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. 
And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord, Yahweh, had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each one of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back, back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die. I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Father, we ask now by your grace that you would minister to us through the Holy Spirit and the teaching of your word to clear the minds of your people to prepare hearts, to receive that glorious truth revealed here in the scriptures, that you'd be greatly honored and that they'd be deeply strengthened and edified. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing that is important for us to remember, beloved, is that as we read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we must read it as one story. One redemptive plan with one hero. The single story of redemption whose hero is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not two stories. It is one story of God's redemptive plan for his elect. But at the same time, it's important that we understand that the Bible contains numerous stories spanning thousands of years with countless participants, all pointing to greater truth than themselves in a greater event than that which captures their lives for whatever moment it was. 
One theologian points out the following, quote, These individual stories were threads woven into the pattern of a single tapestry. The big story of the creator king whose inscrutable wisdom, justice, and love devised and enacted a unified, multifaceted plan to redeem, reconcile, reconquer, and recreate his rebel creatures, transforming them into his trusting children, his glad and graceful servants, his beautiful bride. End quote. Jew and Gentile alike, from Genesis 3 onward, all who ever have been and all who ever will be saved by the redeeming love of Christ are his bride. So the overarching theme of scripture is redemption. And the redeemer himself, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption is something that we often sing about, amen? Our last song spoke of redemption. Our glorious redeemer. We sing about it. We talk about it. We have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That before the foundation of the earth, the lamb was what? Slain. And it's something, by the way, for which we'll sing about forever. Listen to the words of the apostle John through the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 9, that word purposed comes from the word agorazo. And it's a concept that Paul alludes to frequently in the, in the uh, epistles. And it simply means to purchase. Agorazo, to go to the marketplace or the square to redeem something, to buy, to purchase for oneself. You'd make a purchase at, at the agora, the place in a Roman city where slaves were sold. Slavery was a very common practice. In biblical times, much different from the slavery that we're familiar with here 200 years or so ago in America. Much different. If a person went into debt, he, he, would, he would sell himself for service as a slave to a family. So you would go to the Agora to purchase a slave for your family, to work in your field, to work in your business. So to purpose, to purchase, or to, to agorazo means that you would purchase someone off the trading block and you would bring that individual to yourself as the redeemer. That's what redemption is. The word ex agorazo means that you would not merely purchase, but you would purchase this one in a manner for which he would never ever be sold again. To buy up permanently. Finally. To finally, once and for all and forever, to set one free. Get the picture? Redemption. So Ruth is God's illustration for us to understand his redeeming love for his people. The love of Christ, the redeeming love of Christ for his glorious elect body. 
of believers. I mean, that's really the theme of the book. Provides a beautiful illustration of redemption for us. And the key verse in Ruth is chapter 3, verse 9. Boaz says to Ruth, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a redeemer. Close relative, your translation probably says. You are the Goel. In other words, the kinsman. The Goel. A close relative, the the next of kin. And if the next of kin so chooses, he may buy back that which has been sold into slavery, be it land or people, as we shall see. Now, the primary characters of the story of uh, Ruth is Ruth herself and Boaz. Ruth representing sinners in need of God's redeeming love and grace. Boaz, the Redeemer himself, is, is, is a picture or a type of Christ full of virtue, full of strength, power, and grace. But the story begins with a Jewish man in the land of the Jews, in Bethlehem, the house of bread, who led his family contrary to the word of God. Oh, the responsibility we have in raising our children in truth. Amen? Oh, the responsibility we have not to lead them astray into idolatrous types of worship or false understandings about the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1, chapter 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. Now we'll look at the details of those two verses next time. But notice verse 1 there, it says, Now it came about in the days when judges governed. This is a bad time. This is a time of great apostasy. This is a time of rebellion. This is a time of relativism. Turn, turn back one page to the last verse of Judges. Last chapter, last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every di- everyone did what was what? Right in his own eyes. That's relativism. There is no absolute. We will do as we feel best. We will do that which we deem is truth. So Elimelech moves out of the land of Israel to foreign soil because of famine. And the famine here is the result of God's hand. The judgment of God. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, we have the blessings and cursings of obedience and disobedience. In chapter 27 from from Mount Ebal, If you do not obey the Lord your God, you will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Then from Mount Gerizim, a blessing. If you obey the Lord your God, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. So rather than trusting God where he was, he moves his family into the land of idolatry. If you were to stand on a ridge in Bethlehem, 
you could look over the Dead Sea, and you could look into the green hills of Moab. 3,500 feet above sea level, they get about 16 inches of rain a year. So here, in a place of drought, and a place of famine, that would be a beautiful sight to starving eyes. Amen. Now, the problem here is that it's not your land, Elimelech. It's not your people. These are enemies of the Jews. They serve up children and sacrifice, and they bow down to idols, false gods. You don't belong there. This would be a step of unbelief for him. A bad compromise decision made under pressure. Have you ever made a bad decision under pressure? Just besides me? (laughs) The consequences can be costly, can't they? But again, oh, but the providence of God. Oh, but by the grace of God and his providential care for his people. As we'll see unfold in the story in the coming weeks. The gracious providence of God, even under the foolishness of a man. More details next time about Moab as well. Who they were, where they came from. But it was here in Moab, a prohibited territory, that Elimelech leads his family. Here his sons take wives for themselves, and those sons die. They die, Elimelech dies. Naomi's life and the life of these two daughters-in-law is now upside down. All the men in their life are dead. So where Elimelech sought a home, he found a grave. Jesus said in Matthew 16, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What is a profit? So success is short-lived in the plains of Moab, amen? And I wonder this morning if you're dwelling in forbidden territory. Are you dwelling in the land of idolatry? As a child of God, a redeemed child of God, are you dwelling in the land of compromise? Come out from among them. Light and darkness cannot dwell together, amen? Jesus said through Paul, come out from among them. Separate yourselves from unbelievers. Do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. We share no commonality whatsoever. We're to be light to them. We're not to be joined to them. So by losing her husband and by losing the sons now, that means she loses her name. And if she loses her name, she loses her inheritance. So the land that Elimelech had in the beginning when they left, it's not hers now. She can't retain it. She can't regain it. So the family allotment of land back in Bethlehem would be a loss through these circumstances. So when the land was barren and empty 10 years ago, that land is now bearing bread. It's fruitful. 
God's blessing is back upon the land. It's upon the people. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So Naomi now urged these these born and bred Moabite widows, her daughters-in-law, to go back to their mom. Just go home. I'm moving home. I'm going back. Then in verse 14, they lifted up their voices in response and they wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law. So Orpah returns to her people, to her land, and to her false gods. Ruth, however, was not of the same mind. And in verses 8 to 15, right here in Ruth chapter 1, depict for us one of the most decisive moments in the entire book. Not only, beloved, is it one of the most decisive moments in this book, it's one of the most decisive moments in all of redemptive history because of the providential hand of God. What we see here in these two women is a difference between mere kisses and unwavering commitment. And oh, is there a difference. You have people slapping you on the back, kissing you on the cheek all day, telling you how great you are. And they could care less about being committed to you. Let me tell you. To me, this is equivalent today for Christians who understand the cost. The cost of the cross, the cost of Christianity. The Christian life is not easy, beloved. It will cost you greatly. And in the midst of this great cost is is support. Not murmuring, not complaining, not nitpicking, not backbiting, and finally not bailing. One church to the next. Committed. You know, involvement in church. You know, a lot of people are heavily involved in church. You've met them all. Throughout my Christian life, there's people who are heavily involved, but that is not equivalent to being committed. It's a big difference. So Ruth here portrays steadfast commitment. Ruth, a Moabite, she speaks words here that depict something that she has picked up in the last decade. Something deep, something rich, something about Yahweh, the one true God, the only God and his people. Verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord, Yahweh, do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Keep speaking the truth of God and the love of Christ to your children, regardless of how they may resist, beloved. Pray for them. While you're living out a celebratory gospel life, okay, And we're recipients. We're we're not about getting busy and do, do, do. It's all been done, amen? So when it's all been done, we rejoice and we are proclaimers of that truth, heralds of that truth, gospel celebrators. And we live out that truth. 
with joy, with anticipation, with hope. We pray diligently. We train up our children in the way they should go. When they're old, they shall not depart. That is a, not promise, that's a probability, that's a proverb. So we do our best, yielding ourselves to these, training these kids up, so that perhaps if they rebel, and if they go into foreign land, that truth, rooted deep down in the heart, he'll bring to the surface. I'm looking at the faces of some of y'all who I know the story that you left. You went to Moab. You dwelt in Moab. You were the prodigal. But the truth of God that was sown into you came to the surface. He brought conviction upon your soul and he breathed life into you and you're part of the body today. Amen? Amen. Amen. So they returned to the people of God at the beginning of harvest season. Verse 22, so Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So she returns, word gets out, then all the women are chit-chattering. Is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? That must be Naomi. Here they are at the watering well at noon. Isn't that Naomi? Coffee clutch. My mom was in a coffee clutch when I was a kid, and I remember sitting at their feet and hearing women gossip all day about everybody and whatnot. Not my mom, but all the other women. <laughs> I remember they were all barefoot, too. Something I just remember. Yeah, moms would get together, and they, it was summer, and they were just barefoot and drinking coffee and eating donuts and talking about stuff. Here the women are. Is that Naomi? That can't be Naomi. You see, Naomi went out young. Naomi went out strong. Naomi went out beautiful. She went out wealthy, thinking that the grass was greener on the other side of the dry valley. And she came back old, worn, empty, bent, and broken. That's what the land of idolatry will do. Now, notice, ten years, ten years earlier, they only felt helpless. They only felt destitute and hopeless. And Elimelech compromised. So she gets back here in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Lord has sovereignly caused all of this. And you know what? She's right. Yes, she's right. Now, don't, don't get, have a, paint a wrong picture here of Naomi. She was still very kind and very loving in character. No doubt about that. I mean, we've witnessed that here in chapter 1. Yet she did acknowledge that it was the sovereign hand of God that had dealt bitterly through all of this. For his greater purposes, she doesn't see chapter 4 yet. Amen? So even, th- even though this was through the heir of her husband, she understands the primary cause of all this. The one who allowed all this, the one who brought upon the famine in the first place. The one who took the lives of her sons and her husband. doesn't say that it was necessarily because of this, it just is what it is, amen. Now it's interesting that what seemed to be barren and empty ten years earlier, notice what she says in verse 21. Now, they went out because the land was barren. They went out because they felt empty. But she says in verse 21, a decade later, I went out what? Full. Man, I'll tell you, what I thought was bad back then wasn't so bad, was it? 
I had a husband and I had two sons. So there was famine in the land. So what? We went to the land of idolatry and we've got nothing. I was full. Now I'm empty. So whatever you may be going through, believer, whatever you as a Christian might be going through, know this. Whatever the worst is that God may have for you, for his sovereign sanctifying purposes in and through your life, I'll tell you what, it is so much better and it is the best compared to what the devil will provide for you on a silver platter. (laughs) It may look good and it may taste good, but it will destroy you. And it's always much better than what you think is better. What we think is better. Consequences of sin is death. Death to relationships. Not just physical death. Death to relationships. Death to hope. Death to strength and courage. So Naomi says, in effect, God's hand was in all of this. I mean, this is actually a testimony of her faith, beloved. She understands the bigger picture. She gets it. So here she is now. No wealth, no self-sufficiency, no investments to cash in on. She stands helpless. Like the spiritual beggar in Matthew chapter 3, verse 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because when they're at that place, they are the children of God. They've become the children of God because of the grace of God in bringing to the, them to the place of understanding their spiritual depravity. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted mourning over their sin because they've never before seen their sin as God sees it until they come poor in spirit. You see, you have no self-sufficiency. There's nothing in and of yourself to stand up before a holy God. She's empty. She's broken. She has no purchasing power. She has no political leverage whatsoever. But one thing she does have, beloved, hope. Hope. She had a kinsman redeemer, a close relative, a near of kin, a mighty man, a kind man who had plenty of money. In his name, Boaz, strength, who beautifully typifies Jesus Christ, our great eternal kinsman redeemer. Now, verse 2, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So, Ruth goes now, under the tutelage of Naomi, where she would most likely find her redeemer. So, with hope, in her mind and in her heart, that he might be most gracious to her. So, she went where the kinsman kinsman comes to gather his harvest, to the field. See, she went where you are now, beloved, among God's people. God's people, where Christ comes and gleans among his people. He, he, we sow, right? The truth, the truth, the truth. And he's the great harvester. We're not the harvester. We get to see the harvest, amen? He gleans here among God's people. You see, Naomi's hope was in the word of God. She knew the word of God. Ten years in Moab, yes. Detrimental to her growth, no doubt. 
But that word was there, and God in his providential care and under the sovereign umbrella of his purposes brings to the surface now his word. And what comes to her mind? The law of the kinsman redeemer. This oriental law of kinship comes from the word of God, God's law. And it said this, if a person was to suffer loss, he couldn't make ends meet, he went into bankruptcy, and he needed to to rid himself of this debt, he would sell off his land. And if it was really bad, he would sell himself into an indentured type of slavery, where he would become the servant of whoever would redeem him, whoever would buy him up. So what would happen is a close relative who had a right to redeem that person back to themselves, their property or their person, he would, this was the Goel, he would go to the Agora and redeem that person and redeem their land. Leviticus 25, it said this, For every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Verse 47. Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you becomes sufficient and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as as to sell himself to a stranger who's who's sojourning with you, or to their descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he's been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his what, beloved? Blood relatives from his family may redeem him. Now, we're going to see Leviticus 25, the law of redemption, illustrated in the book of Ruth most clearly. It's a beautiful picture of our redemption. Redeeming both property as well as people. So, in response to this kinsman hope of reality that is now in the mind and in the heart of Naomi, in chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth, now, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find what? Favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she just happened, just happened to come, just by chance, (laughs) to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the family of Elimelech. Do you believe in luck or do you believe in providence? You're a Christian, right? Then you don't believe in luck, you believe in providence. Under the sovereign framework of Almighty God. This wasn't luck. You see glorious providence played out throughout this book as well over the weeks. So God graciously here and most providentially brings his elect where he wills to be merciful. The kinsman... It was up to him whether or not he was going to willingly redeem one back to himself, as we will see. So in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, we see this most gracious redeemer. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. You know, to anyone working in the field, anyone who's reaping, who works as a reaper, 
created a new word last service, and I combined peoples and reapers with reaples. <laughs> In ignorance, it just came out. So here you have some reaples <laughs> who loved Boaz, and Boaz loved them. He said, blessed, my beloved. And they said, bless you, my brother. When, you're a, when you work in the fields of the great harvester, you understand his abundant blessing. You understand that you're privileged to work in the fields of the great harvester. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Boaz. He's from Bethlehem. Where does our Boaz come from? Boaz, um, Bethlehem. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Another coincidence. Bethlehem, the house of bread. See, those working in the field sense the Lord's blessing. Poured out and poured into them. And what's poured into them comes out of them. It overflows, you see. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And what a great return it is. A blessed, abundant return. You know, a key to Christian living the spiritual life is that you will either be giving out or you'll be giving up. Because of what we've been granted, because of what has been poured into us, because of as being gospel recipients, you will either pour out the glorious grace of God that has been poured into you or you'll bail out. You give up. Because of frustration. Because of bitterness with the other field workers. <laughs> Start nipping. Becoming vicious. Gossiping. Nitpicky. But Boaz here, he's a man who loved his reapers. This is gospel joy coming out of this man. And in response, gospel joy, good news joy, back to the man. Two-way. This is a great relationship, a deep relationship. And those who don't understand that the, the pressed down, shaken together, and running over blessings of gospel life, those are usually those that cause trouble in the field. But those in the field, man, may the Lord bless you. So here now in verse 5, the kinsman sets his eyes upon this maiden-to-be. Then Boaz said to his servants who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? What you have in this story is not romance and love. What you have in this story is love and romance. Love first, because love is committed. Right? Romance is fickle. If it's all emotional, right? What we see here displayed is love first. Enacted upon this woman. And Boaz is going to, going to lavish this woman with blessings. Just as the Lord has set his favor upon you. If you're a believer here today, he loved you from eternity past. He fixed his eyes upon you before he created anything. Anything. Before any angel was created, beloved, within the Trinity, he affixed his eyes upon you. 
Ephesians 1, in love. Listen to this. This is beautiful. Ephesians 1, 4. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of what? His glorious will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, what do we have? Redemption. Bought back through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which have been lavished on us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. It's gone. Because of this. He says in verse 9, let your eyes be on this field, Ruth. You satisfy your thirst right here, and I guarantee you protection. Drink from these vessels. Drink from these jars. Drink from this well. No one will touch you. And then in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it in, she also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who's not withdrawn his kindness of the living and of the dead. And again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. This is our closest relative. Literally, this is the man that is near to us. This is our redeemer. This is the man, Ruth, I've been telling you about. Our hope. Now, there's another Old Testament law that comes into play in this story and is now in the mind of Naomi. Again, here's the word of God resonating in her heart. It's the law of the leveret marriage. The leveret marriage or the leveret marriage, if you prefer to pronounce it that way. Which said, if a man dies before he and his bride are able to have a child, it was the responsibility of the next of kin to go marry that widow, bear a son, and then that son would not be his own son, but it would, he would bear the name of the deceased father and be able to take on his inheritance. So his name and his inheritance would continue on through that son. Look at Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse 5. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn from... Whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. 
But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come into the sight of the elders, pull off his sandal, off his foot, and spit in his face. Isn't that cool? (laughs) And then she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. And then he would spend his life feeling like a heel, right? So his name, his inheritance would continue on through this nearest of kin. So with that in mind, Naomi says here in chapter 3, My daughter, shall I not seek security? In other words, seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, the winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. He winnows there. Wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So at the right time, when he lies down, verse 4, you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and then uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what you shall do. She's moving upon this great redeemer. To go after him, to mark his place. So she comes in like a betrothed woman, doesn't she? She's clean, she's anointed, she's attractive, she's made herself right for this moment. Washed, cloaked in the best robes. This is a picture of us. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We're cloaked in the righteous robes of the Lord Jesus Christ, anointed by the Holy Spirit, robed in his righteousness. This is a picture of the bride finding grace at the feet of the kinsman, the Redeemer. So in verses 3 to 13, she comes, she lies down. Notice verse 7. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. This is like a sinner in need of mercy. And when a sinner is at this place, he comes to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ asking, are you willing to redeem me? Are you willing to forgive me? Jesus was willing to save many a sinner. Jesus was willing to heal many a leper. The leper came to Jesus in Luke, or in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, verse 40 rather. A leper came to Jesus beseeching him, falling on his knees before him, saying, if you are what? If you're willing, you can make me clean. 
woman in the city, Luke chapter 7, who was a sinner. Jesus was dining at a Pharisee's house. She comes in with an alabaster, alabaster flask of oil, pours it upon him. It runs down to his feet. She gets down, crying on his feet, washing his feet with her hair, weeping. A sign of absolute dependence. And here's Ruth, absolutely dependent upon the Redeemer. She wasn't too proud to humble herself as a beggar. Because Boaz is the only one that can help her. Our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is the only one that can help you out of your sin condition. And we find rest at his feet. So all concern for her reputation, it's out the window at this point. She had to have him. She was willing to risk everything to have him. Have you come to the place in your life of absolute humiliation where you understand your need, where you understand you're lost, you need a covering, you need to be made right, you need to be made a bride, you need to be cloaked in righteous robes of the, for which only one can provide, and it's Jesus Christ? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. So he says, verse 9, who are you? Here it is in the middle of the night. Who are you? Imagine how startled this man was. Just humanly speaking here, he's just a guy. <laughs> Whoa. Who are you, little lamb? I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Cover me. This is to say, grace me. Take me. Nothing inappropriate here, by the way. This expression to, is, is to spread out the outer edge of your garment. To lay claim in marriage. Cover me. Make me your own. You are the Goel. You are the Redeemer. I come to you. Are you willing? In verse 11, he says, I will do whatever you what? Whatever you ask. However, stopping point, pause. However, I cannot. Here's Boaz. Here's the man of God. I cannot violate the law of God. Okay, I'm willing to lose. I'm willing to do this, but I cannot step over God's prescribed manner for doing this. Look at verse 11. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you're a woman of excellence. Now it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will not redeem you, good. Or if he will redeem you, good. But in his mind, he's thinking, if he doesn't redeem you, good. As we'll see. Let him redeem you, but if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So now he goes to the place where all men do business in this day, and it's at the city gates. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative to whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, hey, you. Pretty much that's how it reads. Hey, you. Turn aside, friends. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who's come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech, our relative. 
So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. So Boaz says here, he says, look, you know Naomi's returned, right? Right. You know that Elimelech had a piece of land, right? Yes. You're the next of kin. So if you're going to redeem the land, redeem it. What do you think? Great. I'll redeem it. I'll take the acreage. Then Boaz steps in and he says, okay, wait a minute though. If you choose to exercise this option, don't forget. If you buy the land, you must also take this woman, Ruth. And by the way, she's a Moabitess. And when you take her, you must sow seed. You must have a child with her. And when you have that child, it will not be counted as your child, but rather will be counted as her deceased husband's son. And he will carry on the inheritance. What do you think about that? (laughs) Verse 6. closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. You see, Christ, our great kinsman redeemer, will have us only by dealing with the law first. I did not come to eradicate the law. Most assuredly, I say to you, not one jot or not one tittle will by any means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. He's the fulfillment of the law. He came and fulfilled the law in order to make us heirs with God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer. So now, there's four qualification, four qualifications for any kinsman Redeemer. And they're as follows. Number one, he must be a blood relative. Boaz was a blood relative. Secondly, he had to be able to pay the price. Boaz was a wealthy man. He was able to pay the price. Thirdly, the kinsman had to be willing to pay the price. He didn't have to pay the price. He had to be willing to pay the price. Boaz was willing to pay the price. And fourth, the kinsman had to be free from debt himself. So notice how Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, typifies the Lord Jesus Christ in an eternal sense. Okay? Number one, his relationship to you, Jesus Christ, the great kinsman redeemer, the eternal kinsman redeemer, 
is related to you by blood. Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 11. Which reads, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one what? Father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them what? You can say it here. We're cool with that. Brethren. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He took on flesh, he took on blood. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, bought out of that slave block. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, to to make satisfaction, to pay satisfaction to the Father for their sins. Propitiation, satisfaction. So here we have the descendants of Abraham, one covenant, Jew and Gentile alike throughout time. That is the covenant of grace, beloved. Grace. Here you have a Jew and a Gentile coming together, Boaz a Jew, Ruth a Gentile, coming together where something incredible happens. It's a glorious portrait of the redeeming love of Jesus Christ towards every tribe, tongue, and nation. One gospel, one covenant of grace. Secondly, the Redeemer has to be able to pay the price. And Jesus had to be able to pay the price to redeem you. First Peter 1, knowing that you were not what? Redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So we were redeemed, not with corruptible things, not with things that perish, but the very blood of the lamb himself. You know, God Almighty could never be satisfied in his holy justice for sins with anything short of the sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Nothing. You see, men's blood, our sinful blood cannot satisfy God. That's impossible. He will not be satisfied with, this, with the blood of sinners. That's Ezekiel 33.10. Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us. And we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? They cry out. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. You see, God cannot be satisfied with the blood of sinners. He can't be satisfied with the death of the wicked. He will punish sin and vindicate his holiness and his justice, and that's why, beloved, hell is eternal. This price is a great price, and he was able to pay the price. God looked upon his son 
And Isaiah says it pleased the father to what? To crush the son. He drank the cup of damnation dry and it satisfied the justice of God, you see. Our kinsman was able to pay the price that redeems slaves forever set you free. Thirdly, the kinsman must be willing to pay the price of redemption. He must be willing. Jesus was more than willing, amen? He was willing in eternity past. You see, the kinsman, the kinsman was not forced, as we read, to redeem his closest kin's inheritance. He had the option. Now, he would be put to shame if he didn't, but the law did not require it. So, therefore, Jesus' willingness on our behalf is beyond comprehension. It's beyond our finite mind's imagination. That's why this grace is so abounding and abundant. Hebrews 10, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the what? The law. And he said, behold, I have come to do what? I've become to do your will, O God. He takes away the first covenant that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the authoring of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Willing to pay the price. Jesus set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem, beloved. Jesus set his face as a flint towards Golgotha, the cross. Nothing would move him. He was willing to to take upon himself the iniquities of us all. He was willing to take upon himself the wrath of God and the experience of hell on that cross as he hung there in darkness for three hours, six hours total. He willingly redeemed us from the agora. The slave block of sin, death, and what? Hell. That's a willingness that we rejoice in. And then finally, the kinsman had to be free of debt himself. A slave couldn't purchase a slave in the Agora. Jesus owed no one a thing. What did Jesus owe the Father? Did he owe him righteousness? No. He was righteous. He was the personification of righteous. Inward righteousness. Outward righteousness. He had no obligation for himself whatsoever. Period. End of story. However, he assumed total obligation for you. That righteous standard of the Father? Holy perfection. So before the world was, what did he say? I will do all that you require of me to the Father. So Christ bought us. Finally, as we conclude, that his name would be made famous. In other words, that his name would be glorified. Look at finally chapter 4 in Ruth, beginning in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. 
Then the woman, the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed and his father. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram. And to Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon. And to Nashon, Selmon. And to Selmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse was born David. And from the loins of David would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's a glorious bloodline, beloved. A Jew and a Gentile together make up part of the bloodline of the Lamb of God. You know, Ruth is the only book in the Bible named after an ancestor of Jesus Christ. It's also the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Jew. And it's one of two books in the entire Bible named after women, the other being Esther. So there then is one of those countless stories who, who's part, who part, whose participants in the story point to something greater than themselves, greater to their, than their situation. It's all Jesus Christ. Genesis to Revelation, it's Jesus Christ. He's the hero of the story. Regardless of what you study in the Bible, regardless of where we preach from the Bible, if Christ isn't in there, some, you look, you, as Spurgeon said, I run there till I get there. I run to the cross, whatever passage of scripture I'm in, to get to Christ, the fulfillment of all this, the hero of the story. So this is a much greater redemption than the redemption of Elimelech's land, amen? This is a much greater marriage than the marriage of Ruth. So even so, it's a greater kinsman redeemer than Boaz It's the kind, mighty, and wealthy, everlasting Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the greater, the Redeemer of our souls. Amen. So we conclude with that great quote that I opened with. The big story of the Creator King, whose inscrutable wisdom, justice, and love devised and enacted a unified, multifaceted plan to redeem, reconcile, reconquer, and recreate his rebel creatures transforming them into his trusting children, his glad and grateful servants, his beautiful bride. The bride of Christ. The marriage of Boaz and Ruth is a picture of Christ and his eternal bride, the church, by his one glorious covenant of what? Grace. Be encouraged in that this week, beloved our great kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, to whom all of scripture points to. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, again, we are overwhelmed by the famous one. We know, Lord, as the scripture says that when your fame went out through all of the land, 
that you moved away from the crowds, you went up upon a hill and you sat down and there you spoke to your disciples and you said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. And we thank you, Lord, from this story thousands of years ago that one woman who returned wanting to be named bitter would once again experience the sweetness of your grace in her life by providing a great kinsman, a great and glorious redeemer. It would signify something much better than the attainment of of land lost and a new marriage, but a redemptive plan that would save her soul, that would save Ruth's soul, that would save Boaz's soul, that would save Obed's soul, that would save David's soul, Jesse's soul. It saved Adam's soul and it saves our soul. That one covenant, that one glorious covenant of grace established at the fall of man in the garden. Made known to man. But founded and authored in eternity past between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, these are things beyond our finite minds. But help us as we look at the pictures that portray these great truths throughout Scripture that we give all glory and honor, pointing always and forever to the Son, the Lamb, who was slain before the foundation of the earth to redeem his bride back to himself. For your glory, in Christ's name, in the building up of your saints. Amen.